This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Get ready for the next leap in wireless technology with AT&T 5G. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Louisa Beck from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 3rd. Today, a historic abortion case in the Supreme Court, how the coronavirus outbreak might end, and the land of people named Buttigieg. We've been waiting for this Supreme Court case for a long time. When... Justice Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court. This morning marks the fourth and final day of Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. Everybody started wondering, okay, what's going to happen to abortion rights? What would you say your position today is on a woman's right to choose? It is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade. Then how is the Supreme Court going to take that up? And this is really the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court this week will consider new restrictions on abortion rights. The Supreme Court is going to have to wrestle with abortion in a meaningful way since Kavanaugh was confirmed. As it examines the legality of a Louisiana law that could force two of the state's three abortion clinics to shut down. As soon as it got on the calendar, I knew that I wanted to take a deeper look into the kind of intricacies of what's at stake here. I believe that the right to life is the greatest right there is. And I think the right to life supersedes every other right that we have. Caroline Kitchener is a staff writer for The Lily. She talked to our producer, Rena Flores, about this case from Louisiana that's being argued in the Supreme Court on Wednesday. It's the first abortion case to be heard by the court since Kavanaugh was appointed. This is a case about hospital admitting privileges, and that is a term that you're probably going to hear a lot over the course of the next couple days. If a doctor has admitting privileges, it means that he or she can see patients at a particular hospital. So hospitals have to give out admitting privileges so that doctors can practice there. And that's like a doctor with a private practice can admit a patient to the hospital. Yes, yes, absolutely. The Supreme Court case is called June Medical Services v. Russo. What they're trying to decide is whether it places an undue burden on women to require abortion practitioners to have admitting privileges at local hospitals, usually within like a 30-mile radius of the clinic. So over the course of the past decade, we have seen states implementing something called trap laws. And these are restrictions that are placed on abortion clinics, things like regulating the, you know, type of rooms or equipment or hallway sizes, sizes, anything you can think of to restrict or regulate the places where abortions take place, the clinics. And one particular type of trap law that we have seen a lot of, it's the idea that the people who provide abortions have to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. 
to somebody who doesn't know a lot about this issue, that might seem like a good idea. Yeah, sure. You know, doctors who provide abortions, yeah, they should they should be able to to work at local hospitals. That is a lot more complicated and actually really difficult for abortion providers to get. So what is the actual reality of the situation, especially in places like Louisiana? The reality in Louisiana is that if this law is upheld, there are only a very small handful of doctors who can legally provide abortion. As it stands in the state right now, there are only two doctors who provide abortion who have hospital admitting privileges at a local hospital. And one of those doctors has said that if this law is upheld by the Supreme Court, he's not comfortable being one of the, quote, last men standing. So Kathleen Pittman has been at the Hope Clinic in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is one of three abortion clinics that is left in the state for 26 years. I'm the administrator. I began as a counselor. I became director of counseling, patient services. And she is the person at the clinic who is in charge of getting these privileges to get her practitioners licensed in the way that they would need to be if this court case doesn't go the way she wants it to. What did Kathleen tell you about some of the difficulties in actually getting hospitals to give out these admitting privileges? Kathleen, you know, as soon as she realized that this could become an issue, that there was a chance that the state was moving in the direction of requiring abortion providers to have admitting privileges, she immediately started going to every single hospital within the required 30-mile radius. She started reaching out on behalf of her providers saying, okay, hey, we want to get these privileges. What do I need to do? It sounds like a simple thing of let's fill out an application. But no, it's multiple phases and it is multiple departments. Now that process is incredibly long and involved. Hospitals don't want to be branded as the you know, pro-abortion hospital. Kathleen Pittman told me about the one hospital that, that does give admitting privileges for a doctor at the Hope Clinic. They have protesters outside. The hospital where he had his primary practice had protesters that were outside the main drive for the hospital. People know that this particular doctor works at the clinic. They know that he also works at the hospital, and that causes problems for the hospital. They're attacking signs. That physician had, you know, was demonized on Facebook and other social media. So that's the kind of thing that happens, especially in conservative places where the overwhelming amount of people are anti-abortion. And it's like a particularly tricky thing because it seems like a neutral thing that would be good for women's health. I mean, more credentialed doctors, yeah, better. From the anti-abortion side, the argument is that abortion is dangerous for women. It's unregulated. It's unrestricted. You'll often hear anti-abortion doctors saying things like veterinary centers or tattoo parlors are, are subject to more regulations than abortion clinics. 
Are these abortion clinics actually unregulated? No. You know, particularly in more conservative-leaning states, there are a lot of regulations. It does differ state to state. So in Louisiana, you know, one of the important restrictions is the 24-hour waiting period. So when a woman comes in and wants an abortion, you know, she kind of has to has to sit down with somebody and then, you know, come back in for the procedure at least 24 hours later. You know, I was visiting an abortion clinic in Georgia and they were telling me how, you know, on a very regular basis they have, you know, people from you know, employed by the government coming in and doing a sweep. They don't announce when they're going to do that. They just make sure that the facility is regulation and up to code. What are the facts behind that? Are abortions unsafe? Abortion is a really safe procedure. Overwhelmingly, you go to an abortion clinic, you have the procedure, and then you're done. You go home. There's no complications. It's very, very rare that there is any kind of serious complication with an abortion. The people who work at clinics and provide abortions there, their patients don't need to go to the hospital. So when they apply for admitting privileges, the hospitals say, "Okay, well, how many patients can we expect to have here from you? And they'll say, zero. Zero. (laughs) And, you know, a hospital is a business. And going through the admitting privileges process is just not something that they want to do with random doctors who aren't actually going to work at their hospital. There's always the political outcry. There's always some the potential for backlash. But also there is, I mean, hospitals, yes, they take care of people, but they also have to run as a business. What's at stake is a woman's ability to get an abortion in Louisiana, period. If this law is upheld by the Supreme Court, it's likely that there's only one doctor, if any, who can legally provide abortion in the state. Caroline Kitchener is a staff writer for The Lily. Not to be alarmist, if it really does get terrible, the analogy would be the Spanish flu. I'm William Wan. I'm a national health reporter. I've been writing about the coronavirus for like two weeks now. And so in between all of these like breaking news things, I would call up epidemiologists and virologists. I started asking, well, what's the best case scenario and worst case scenario? And so they laid out a few. And the best is not great, unfortunately, and the worst is really bad. The story is basically, how is this going to end? This is the question in the back of everyone's mind. And this is what we know based on the past, you know, epidemics in recent history. So essentially, you looked back at these viral outbreaks from history to get a sense of what it could look like if coronavirus were to spread in that model. So what was the first scenario that you looked at, the one that was basically the not-so-great but still best-case scenario? So that one is the the SARS epidemic from 2002. 
started out very scary. It was quite fatal. It had a fatality rate of about 10%. So out of 100 people, 10 are going to die. That's not great. And and for people who had SARS, what were the symptoms? Was it kind of like a, a flu sort of situation? Yeah. So SARS is actually very similar to coronavirus. That's why I started the first call I made was with a SARS specialist. It's actually a coronavirus. There's seven coronaviruses in the world. This is one of them. This was a new one that emerged in 2002. You would get respiratory symptoms, develop pneumonia, just die basically from respiratory problems. But what was interesting about SARS, at least from my memory, is that it feels like it it all started really fast and people were really scared very quickly. But then it seemed like it resolved pretty quickly too. Yeah, and the surprising thing is it resolved. It's it, What happened is people freaked out. Governments took very strong measures. There was a delay on China's part. There was a real lack of transparency, which made things worse. But, you know, within months, governments mobilized to use very old school, strict public health measures. And that's what kind of stamped it out, which is kind of surprising. You think modern world, we need, you know, like all of these modern methods, but it was just basically isolating people who are sick, quarantining so no one is contagious to others, and then contact tracing. Someone has it and you follow back the path of who they've encountered, who they got it from, who they might have spread it to. And so if this is a potential model for what coronavirus could look like, if governments put the right basic public health measures in place, like getting people isolated quickly, quarantining people that have been exposed, then at least by using the SARS model, this could be done in a few months, that they could really clamp down on it pretty fast. That would be so wonderful. It would be stamped out. It would be so great. Unfortunately, it's probably not going to end up that way with this one. Who knows? People should try because any kind of measures are going to slow it down, contain it, minimize deaths. But SARS was much more severe. So you would show the symptoms. People would go to hospitals. It was easier to diagnose. This one, it's very mild symptoms. Many people, experts think, have it and don't even know it. And so it's much harder to contain and uh, mitigate it because people are just spreading it without knowing it. Because the window of time between when you're exposed to the actual virus and when it starts presenting is so much longer that you have time to be running around doing your day-to-day life and encountering people without knowing that you're spreading it before you actually get to a point where you report yourself to a hospital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was scenario one, which is that it could look like SARS, although it sounds like that maybe isn't quite likely. What is scenario two? Scenario two is possibly the most likely. This is the H1N1 outbreak that happened in 2009. People call it the swine flu. It spreads so quickly. This is the last pandemic uh, World Health Organizations declared, the most recent one. And what happened with H1N1, basically the scenario is that this virus spreads so widely, it just becomes a fact of life. H1N1 is still out there. It spreads every year with the seasonal flu. Uh, we even kind of got it in our flu shots um, for, for several years after as part of our regular flu vaccine. So it's just a fact of life, which on one level is comforting, like humans can adapt to anything, they can survive anything, we'll survive this. That's great. And it's not a terrible scenario, but it also comes with like a high number of people who are going to die, unfortunately. So what, what H1N1 was actually very mild. There was a lot of panic initially about it, but the fatality rate is 0.01%. 
too uh, estimated. It could also be uh, could be as high as like 0.03 percent, but that's pretty low. If you look at what coronavirus is estimated at, the fatality rate is probably somewhere at 2.3 percent is what they think. A great thing about H1N1, it doesn't kill as many people ratio-wise, but it was so infectious that like if you're talking about millions of people, 0.01% is a lot of people dead. CDC estimates it killed as many as um, like upwards of 12,000 people in the United States just in that one year, the first year, and infected like 60 million people um, just in the United States, which is a lot. So by using this model, the H1N1 model, what we're essentially looking at is a world in which this strain of coronavirus basically gets absorbed into what we just think of as a common form of the flu, a thing that you don't really want to get, you don't want to give to other people, but just a fact of life. Yeah, that's exactly right. We don't even think about H1N1 anymore. It comes every year. People do continue to die from it, but it's also we now have a vaccine, which is one reason we don't think of it as urgently or as as, as um, panicky about it. Because if you're really vulnerable, older person, children, you can get vaccinated for it. So then there's also a scenario C that is the worst case scenario. What would that look like? Yeah, this is the Spanish flu of 1918. There's a lot of reasons why virologists kind of point to this as some some similarities to coronavirus. It had a fatality rate of 2.5, um, eerily similar to coronavirus, which is an estimated 2.3% fatality rate. And it was bad. It was really bad. And not to be alarmist, but CDC calls Spanish flu the deadliest pandemic flu virus in, in human history. But But everyone I talked to also had all these caveats of why, you know, we shouldn't be alarmist about Spanish flu. It was really bad, but the world was a very different place back then, which means the way we are able to contain this, fight this virus, is going to be a lot more effective. Like, we were in a world war back then in 1918. We didn't have antibiotics, which help a lot in fighting these kinds of uh, viruses because of secondary infections. We also have much better health system these days. You know, hospitals back then, they're a place you go to die rather than to get well. So uh, people have a lot of hope. It's not going to get as bad as the worst case scenario. But if everything was so different back then and and that the public health system that existed in 1918 is very different from the one that we have now, what are the parts of how Spanish flu spread that public health officials think are actually lessons that we still need to be learning now or things that we maybe haven't figured out perfectly since 100 years ago? I think for not just for Spanish flu, but for all of these epidemics, there's like a few key lessons Health officials hope every time afterwards that the world will learn, and sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. One is these public health measures, you know, they're like washing your hands, social distancing. It's hard because I think as a public, there's like a collective memory that just kind of fades. That's why you see everyone kind of reinforcing these messages. The other is just fear and the kind of behavior that can drive our public. We're actually... I think as a country, not as well prepared as some others have been. You see what happened with the testing that had a lot of delays. People, there's a run on masks and health workers aren't going to have enough masks, the fear is. And just our health, our hospitals are are not prepared in a way that we should have been. H1N1 was not that long ago. 
you know, every few years we have another epidemic scare. So I think part of the difference with this virus is that it's a different world in social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter. There may be lessons we're learning from this outbreak that will apply going forward that could be really valuable in terms of how we contain a virus like that. William One covers health and science for The Post. This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. And now, one more thing from The Post's Rome Bureau Chief, Chico Harlan. On Sunday, Pete Buttigieg announced that he would be dropping out of the presidential race. That was a huge disappointment to his supporters and to a lot of people named Buttigieg in an island nation in the Mediterranean. In Malta, they pronounce it. I was I was scolded many times, but I think I got it at the end. It is Buttigieg, Buttigieg, like that, Buttigieg. They kind of roll right over the first two syllables and then draw out the third, like each. Doesn't sound American at all. You might even get made fun of if you called him candidate Pete, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, but uh, that is the way you hear it in Malta. It's a tiny little country. It's about 490,000 people. And there is also a smaller kind of second island that is about one-tenth of the population called Gozo. And what I first found upon doing a little Googling was that, that the island of Gozo had a mayor named Paul Buttigieg. The town that he's the mayor of is also the epicenter of Buttigieg's in Malta, so the epicenter in the world. There, in this village, there's 2,000 people, and, and about one in 14 is a Buttigieg. They're not necessarily related, some are, but most aren't. And across the whole country, there's almost 3,000 Buttigieg's, which is about one in every 170 people. So this is a country where Pete has his heritage, but it's also a place where the name, his name alone carries a lot of resonance for people. His father was born there. His father was born not on the tiny island of Gozo, but on the larger island of Malta. And though he's been gone now for decades, People, it's very easy in his old neighborhood to find people who, who know him, who remember him. And, and what I found almost comically is that somehow, as can like only happen in a small town or a small country for that matter, you, you almost can't quite escape family lineage and it gets pushed together. You almost inherit the stories of your fathers and your grandparents. And, and some people talk about Pete as if he was the one who grew up in Malta and left. I kept hearing, oh, Pete grew up in that house, or this is where Pete, this is the neighborhood where Pete's from. He's not from there, but, but there is this like condensing of family stories that I found, which shows the way the people in Malta feel some connection to him. And yes. she posts things about Pete. Yes, yes. Hi, we are, we are proud of Pete. I post we are the things and positives, <laughs> you know, and especially uh, Buttigieg. Uh, we are very and then, after Chico talked to all these people who were so certain that Buttigieg was going to be the next American president, Buttigieg announced that he was dropping out. I was stunned because coming from Malta, 
people there seemed like <laughs> legitimately convinced that he had a chance and I was just soaking that in for a few days with really no bearing I didn't I didn't do any reporting in the United States for this story and it wasn't about his political candidacy at all If Mayor Pete had won the election, Chico says that he would not have been the first President Buttigieg in the world. Malta's second president was also a Buttigieg, Anton Buttigieg. Chico Harlan is the Rome bureau chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow on Post Reports, we'll discuss the results of the biggest single day of Democratic primaries. And if you didn't catch it yesterday, check out our special Super Tuesday episode featuring a story from every state and U.S. territory that's voting. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Get ready for the next leap in wireless technology with AT&T 5G. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.